Almighty God, we just thank you so much. We are so grateful for your written word you have given to us. Um, you have revealed Christ in your word and you've revealed to us how to live in light of Christ and um, that is the greatest gift you could give us. And I just thank you so much for that and I thank you that we can have Jeff here to come and preach to us um, in this book of First Peter. I pray you give him clarity of mind as he preaches and um, for us as a congregation, would our heart be open to what he has to say? Would you just communicate so clearly through him to our hearts? And would there just be a real change in our hearts from what we hear? So we just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. We're, we're finally starting off in the, in the book of uh, First Peter. So if you've got your Bibles, if you can um, make your way there, that would be fantastic. So as you turn there, I just want to... There's, there's multiple names for this guy named Peter, right? So... First of all, there's this name called Simeon, and it's, well, Simon, but it's, it's actually a relation to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's, it's very close to that, and it means the same thing. So in Hebrew, his name means uh, hearing or to, to, um, to hear. So his name literally means that. It means hears or hearing. Now, we, we often think of uh, Peter, we often think of Petros or these other names that we have of him. But I want you to just recognize the meaning of his name. In, in Jewish circles, the meaning of a name is so important. It is extremely important. And we often think of leaving that name and we go somewhere else with, with him, which is also really important, the name that he's given. But I just want you to remember that because it's going to become important later. His, his name means hearing or to, or to hear or hears. Um, another name that he has is after this great statement where um, Jesus says to to this guy, Peter, he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's what he says. And he says to him, upon that statement, he says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the name of the rock was, so that's his second name in Aramaic, it's actually Kephas. So that's uh, another name of um, this guy. So we've got Simon, we've got Kephas. And in the ancient Greek, the word for rock is Petros. And so now we've got another name for him. And then finally, we get this English where we've got Peter. So there's a few different names. And we often think, you know, when people die, they have this picture and they go up to the pearly white gates and who's there? There's this guy, Peter, that's sitting there eh? and you do it. So you can call him whatever you like. Um, he's not going to be there, but anyway, that's the picture that we often get. Um, but, we, you know, you can call him Simon, you can call him Kephas, you can call him Petros, you can call him Peter. Or if you like the Maldi version, you can just go, hey, bro, <laughs> how's it going? And then, but he's got multiple names. It's just the way that, that um, it is with this guy. So what we're going to do is go straight off into, um, into the ch chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to look at who the recipients are of this letter. So who's this letter actually written to? So if you've got your Bibles there, I want to have a look at the translation that you've got. So if you've got the, the King James Version... You're going to have the word, oh, I'll read it first. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect who are sojourners of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So if you have the King James Version, okay, so you're going to be looking at the word strangers for the one that I've highlighted around there. It's called sojourners. So if you've got the King James, you've got sojourners. By the time they did the new King James, they thought they might change that a little bit because they wanted to bring out a bit more. And so in the new King James, if you have that, you've got the word pilgrims. Okay, and then um, further than that, the, the NASB went all out, and they just said, let's call them aliens. So that's what you've got. If you've got the NASB, you'll see the word aliens. 
Um, and then if you have the NIV, if you've got the ESV or the English Revised Version, you're going to have the word exiles. So that gives you some description of who it's going to. Where is this book going? It's going to these guys that are strangers, the pilgrims, the aliens, and they're exiles. Okay, so that's one part of the coin of who it's written to. But the next one is the word that's right beside it. So if you have a look at right beside it, there's this other word there. And the reason that I've got it in this form is this is an interlinear Bible. So if you're not aware of what an interlinear Bible is, it's just, the, it's just this weird way of, there's the Greek original, and then underneath it is the English words of how you would uh, understand that. But on the top, there's something significant, and there's this number. And the number there helps you reference, uh, like in a concordance, um, what that actual word means. So it's actually two parts. So it's aliens, sojourners, but it's also to, this, to the diaspora. Okay, so we're going to go have a look at the number that sits on the top of that, uh, that word there, and we'll go there, and this is it. Now, there's different concordances. Um, there's uh, famous ones. There's, so there's, there's Young's Concordance, for those of you that are young. Um, there's the Strong's Concordance for the ones that think they're strong. And then there's Crudence uh, Concordance for those of you that are quite crude. So there's a, a version that uh, you can sit with if you like to choose one, but this is, this is from Strong's. Now, I'm just going to put, the, the top point says this. It says, a diaspora, a dispersion, Israelites in Gentile countries. Okay, so and the, coming up to the second to bottom bullet point, it says the definition of a dispersion. It says again this, this idea. So it's Israelites in a Gentile country. And the literal usage of the word means the scattering abroad of the seed of the sower, hence the dispersion used especially of the Jews who had migrated and were scattered all over the ancient world. So now we've got a picture of who the book's going to. It's going to... These guys that are aliens, they don't belong in where they are. They don't belong in the land that they're in. They're actually sojourners, they're passing through, they're pilgrims. But they're also Jewish people that have been taken and, and, and they've actually gone out of the land. That's what dispersed means. They're not in the land of Israel and it's gone to the Jewish people that are up. And that's, it doesn't have, it means we can take a lot from this book, but just so that we can get in context who it was actually handed to, you're going to see the significance of it as we carry on. The word dispersion means it's actually a technical Jewish term which is still in use today. If you talk to Jewish people and they say about the dispersion, they'll know exactly what you're talking about. It's still used today. Okay, and it refers, like I said, to the Jews that live outside the land. It's used elsewhere in the Bible, in John chapter 7, verse 35, and in James chapter 1, verse 1, we also have that, that word. And in this case, it's not a reference to all of the Jews, as you're going to see as we get along the, the outside the land. But in this case, it's going to be referencing the Jewish believers that are living outside of the land of Israel. So that's where it's going to. Okay, so what about the location? Where are these guys um, sitting that, uh, that uh, Peter's writing to? Well, there's a good old Google. Um, and, and that's modern-day Turkey that he's pointing to. But underneath him is, um, is Israel. And, and Israel, after the persecution, especially of the things that you know of, of Stephen being stoned, there was heavy persecution amongst the Jewish believers. Um, and then they, those Jewish believers that were persecuted, they did move. But also there's something else that um, was told to us uh, a couple of weeks ago, this guy named Nero. And he, he burnt part of Rome down and he blamed it on the Jews. And then through that, there was a lots of persecution against the Jewish people. So this is the place. So if you have a look at verse 1, we see the place. Those are the places that, uh, or the areas that he's um, relating this book to. So we've got it in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. 
Okay, so that's the, the recipients. So what we're going to do now is we're going to segue, because there's something quite difficult in this passage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to segue a little bit, and I'm just going to change, and we just got this thing that's on the screen, and it's called a paradox. You might know, you know, that's a commonly understood thing, so a paradox. It's like where two different views see something, but yet they contradict each other. So you've got two, like, views, they both seem okay in what they are, but they actually seem to contradict. And we know this word is of a paradox. So here's a visual one for you. That's just the mess with your head. It's just this idea of this strange thing happening, and it's the, the way that things work. But that's just a, a, another representation of it. But what I'm wanting to um, share with you today is not, not the word paradox. It's just that a lot of people know that word. But I'm going to give you a new word. And it has the same, very similar meaning. But the difference between a paradox and the word we're going to look at is that a paradox can often be based off an error. Sometimes there's an error which produces the paradox, and then because there's this error, we see things from two different perspectives of the truth. However, there's something else that the Bible talks about, and it's called an antinomy. An antinomy is a contradiction between two beliefs or conclusions that in themselves are reasonable. So what it's saying is there's this, this truth over here, there's this truth over here, and there's no error in it but yet they seem to, to contradict. Now, the one that we know the most of in the church is the one that we've even been singing songs about this morning, and it's the Trinity, right? How can God be one God? How can he be three in one? And so there's this, this whole idea of the Trinity. It's a, it's a, that's what it is. It's an antinomy, trying to work out the two of those things. How can God be one, but yet Jesus is also God? And what I want you to do is just turn to, we're just going to look at two verses on this before, because this is not where we were going, but I just want you to look at Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10. And this is going to show a verse for the absoluteness of God. He's one. He's absolutely one. So Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. It says, um, you, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me. So this is the purpose. He wants them to know and understand that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. He says, before me, there was no God formed. Okay, so nothing prior to God has been formed. There is no God previous to God. And then, and then he says, neither shall there be after me. So not even the idea of God being formed afterwards, or even this idea when you think about it, this giving birth afterwards to a different God. That there's no God before him, there is no God after him. He alone is one. There's one God, okay? And he says in verse 11, I even, I am the Lord, and beside me, how many gods do you see? None. There's no God, no other God. And then he says, even more than that, there is no saviour. Okay, that's the completeness of the one of God. That's how it shows how tight that is, that there is only one God. But I want to go to the same book from the same author and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 12. And as I read this, I'm just going to read it through, and you've got to think about who is speaking here, okay? So as I start it, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12, it says, Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. It says, I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Who are we talking about? It's the same one, right? Jehovah, God. I am the first. I am also the last. My hand has also laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens. When I call them, they stand up together. All you assemble yourselves and hear, 
Which among them have declared these things? The Lord hath loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I have spoken, yea, I have called him, I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. Verse 16 is the one that I want to highlight. Have a look at this. Come ye near to me, um, so come ye near unto me and hear this. It's actually Peter's names there. Remember the statement that Peter names? It's his name. Hearing. So I want to read you. Come ye near to me and hear this. Okay. He says this. I have not spoken in secret. From the beginning, from the time, uh, from the time that it was, there am I. Now here's the kicker. Look at the last part of the verse. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. You know the one that's speaking isn't Lord God? The one that says in verse 12 that I am, I'm the first, I am the last. It's it's the closest verse that I can find in the Bible where you have the Trinity in one verse. The one that is speaking is the Lord Jesus. And in the last part of verse 16, he says, and now the Lord God has sent, um, and now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. The one that's speaking is the me. It's an amazing thing. So what we have in this idea is this, here's the antinomy, right? God is one, but yet God is also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that's the truth of it. That's the antinomy. And the reason that I wanted to go there very briefly is because in the passage that we're going to in Peter, we're actually going to deal with another one of these things. Um, so let's go back to this picture that we have. And rather than it being a six and a nine, I'm going to put a one and a three there, right? So I'm going to argue on one side. I'm going to say, look, there's only one God, like Orthodox Judaism. Jesus is not God. There's only one God, and there's only one God only, and therefore Jesus cannot be God. What I've done is I've swung pretty much to one side, right? But then I could swing to the pendulum right across to the other side, and I can say, no, you're absolutely wrong. You know what? There's actually Jesus is a God, and you might have heard that term before, right? He's a God. There's actually three separate gods. And so we've got this idea, but if we swing either way too far, we get into heresy. If we swing to one saying that Jesus isn't God, you're actually in the heresy area. If you go swing the pendulum the other way and say, no, there's actually three separate gods and there is no such thing as one, there's Jesus is a God, then you swing that pendulum the other way and you also go into heresy. So the truth of it actually sits right in the center. The truth sits perfectly in the center where God is both one and he is both three. Now that becomes very important as where we're going now, okay? Because we get into this in the next one. But what happens next is we're staying in our text, but often rather than doing this, this is, this is what happens. It doesn't become where we're sitting, but we get into this big argument. This argument has been so big amongst the churches that it's torn churches apart because of this argument, okay? And so it's something that we've got to deal with. Maybe we should just jump and carry on with other verses, but because it's here, we're going to to look into it, and we're going to see it very, very briefly. Of course, we can't cover a whole lot of that. But that's what I'm wanting to look at, is back to our text. There it is again. So we've got those two words that are covered. We're going very slowly through 1 Peter, I know. Um, But the next one that's beside it is the one that I want to highlight, and that's the word elect. Now, what does elect mean? So elect means that God has chosen God's handpicked, if you want to put it that way, predestined, whichever way you want to look at. But this idea where God has actually chosen, he's, 
He's picked, for some reason, he's done the work. He's chosen these people. And then in this context, it's saying that he's, um, what are we saying? That Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect, the ones that God has already chosen, the one that God has been working on, okay? And then if we just zoom out, we're just going to pick in verse two as well. And it says, so if I just leave out to who it's going to, so it's to the elect, and then we say according to the foreknowledge, okay? So they're elected somehow, God has chosen these ones, and it's in, in according to foreknowledge. Now, um, I think the most common ways that people see this is this way, and that is that they, they view it that when they think of the idea of the elect, that what they mean when it comes to um, foreknowledge is that God looks down the corridors of time, right? So God is there, he looks through the corridors of time, and he sees the decision that you're going to make. And because of that decision that you make, then God says, well, now I'm going to choose you. So that's the, a common way of viewing this. That's how to try and put this thing together, that God, he looks down these corridors, sees what you're going to decide, and then in return for that decision that you make, he is then going to choose you. Okay, so that's, that's one way of, of looking at it. The problem with just holding that view, and I want to tell you that if you hold that view, it's safer. So if you want to hold that view, hold it, okay? Because where we're going to go to is a bit ugly. But hold, hold that one. So it's, if, if you hold, yeah, like just, we'll, we'll see. But all I'm trying to say is that that's a, a view. But the problem with that view is that the Bible talks a lot more about foreknowledge than just knowing in advance. The Bible actually speaks a whole lot more about it than just looking through a corridor of time seeing a decision made, and then coming back. And we don't have time to go through all this because this is a big topic, but I'm just going to pull one verse to show you the problem. So let's have a look at this in Acts chapter 2. The reason that we're going to Acts chapter 2 uh, is because this has a nice balance in there as well. So I've highlighted something else in there as well. We've got to keep it in balance. Remember, Acts chapter 2, verse 21. And it says, And it shall be that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, there's a balance point. We've got to take that into consideration too, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, the person where we are in Acts chapter 2 is just after the Holy Spirit has fallen on the same author that we're studying, First Peter. This is Peter's first um, public sermon after receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And this is what he says. So verse 22, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by mighty works and wonders and signs which God did in him by the midst of you, even as yourselves know. It says, him being delivered up and by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye by the hand of lawless men did crucify and slay. So Peter's just saying, look, you guys handed this Jesus up. And he, but look at the words that he says, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It's the same word, the foreknowledge. Now, you've got to see this. This is where the problem comes. Is if you're saying that God just looked down through a corridor of time and he saw that Jesus would die and then he chose him because that's what he did, you've got a lot of problems with so many verses in the Bible because the foreknowledge has a lot more to do with God's plan before the foundation of the earth even was formed. He had a plan and he had purposes and he made those purposes. And that's why in the Old Testament you're going to see, and then we, as we carry on, there's so many places where God has pre-planned the way that he would like to do it. The word foreknowledge actually has to do more with being known by God than God knowing in advance. It's actually that he knows you. He knows who you are. 
And he's, he's done that because of the way, and it's not just related to looking in advance, but he actually knows you. So that's, that's one side. We're going to have to deal with that, right? But what if we, we accept that? And I'm saying that the Bible definitely has that. And the more you look at it, you'll see that there is, that's where this, a bit of a, um, pre, like trying to figure these things out. That, that there's this idea, and it's absolutely true, that God does elect. But if we swing this pendulum too far the other way, you know what we can do is we can swing, and this is where we get pretty dangerous. If we start to keep swinging and we don't stop in a, in a good spot, we just keep going. We can come to a conclusion that, you know what, if God chooses some, that must mean that he is also, and there's a, there's a word which is very strong, which is called double predestination. He chooses some for eternal life, and you know what the other, he does to the others? He chooses them for hell. That, that's the extreme version so it doesn't matter, you know, why, why should we even preach the gospel? Because if it's all done by God and he does the electing and choosing, what's the point of even telling anyone? Because God is going to do it, right? Because he's sovereign and he's elect. And the thing is, the Bible does talk about this idea that God is sovereign and that he does choose. So we've got to try and balance these things up. How can we weigh this scale into a, a place? So if we go too far on this side, now... This is a key verse, so a place that people go often with this is Romans chapter 9. And, and you think of it, it's talking about this thing where, where there's a vessel for, where God uses for honour and for his glory, and then there's other vessels that he uses for dishonour and for destruction. And that's a, a strong place that people would like to go to when they're dealing with this. I just want you to realise that in the Greek, it's quite different. And when it talks about the vessels that God uses for, for honour, and for his glory, it's actually in the passive voice in Greek. So what it means is that God is making them fit for honour and for his glory. Okay? So not that the, the but God is through that, is he's actually making them uh, ready for his service, and he's doing it because God's doing that work. When it deals with the, the vessels that are for destruction and things like that, it actually uses a different tense. It's, it's a different voice, sorry. It's the, it's the middle voice in Greek. So what it's saying is that they make themselves fit for destruction. It's not that God is making them fit for destruction. It's a wrong process. It's that they themselves have made themselves fit for destruction. And, and that's where this, this pendulum, if we, if we do that. And one other thing that you'll find in the Bible, so that's why I dealt with Romans chapter 9, because that's where people are going to go to when you start um, trying to figure this out. But if you... If you find the verses on predestination where God's elected or God's chosen and done these things, you're only going to find that he's chosen believers. Never once in the scriptures can I find where he chooses someone or predestines someone to hell. That's a faulty, it's logic. It's a logical thinking, but it's not biblical thinking. The logic is if God chose some, he must have chosen others for hell, but it's wrong. It's, it's the opposite way. According to Romans, the idea is that God has worked and he's doing these things and he pulls some for honour, but the others, they make themselves fit for their own, where God is going to allow them or bypass them or whatever you want to see it. But there's this whole thing and this, that's where this whole balance type of thing comes. But we don't want to, it's a big topic, um, but the reason that I want to go there is that where's the balance? The balance has to be, and that's why I was trying to show you the Trinity, right? If we go on the Trinity, if we go too far to one side, you're going to go off, way off. If you go to the Trinity on the other side, you, you're going to go in a real bad place as well. It's exactly the same with this debate. 
the debate is true that God is absolutely sovereign, that he does, the Bible says clearly that he does choose, he does elect and things like that. But also at the same time, the gospel is for everyone. For, you know, and that's John 3.16. It's not the idea of for God so loved the world that he, he gave his only son, that only those that who he was, you know, and put all these other words in there. It doesn't say whosoever should believe in him. And that's the idea. That's where the balance comes from, is that God does it. And the reason that um, this debate happens is that often we use our time, right? It's based on our time. This happened first, and then once that happened, then this is the result. Or God did this first, and then once that happened, this was the result. You remember, God's outside of that. It doesn't, it doesn't happen like that. We often think in the time, which happened first? Was it this or that? But with God, these things. And so we're just going to go back to the text and just... As we, as we land here, I've just, uh, now can you see it? Yep, you've got it there. So you can't see it very clearly, but I've got the word because there. So I'm going to say, if we have one swing of the pendulum, we can say that uh, to the elect, because of foreknowledge, okay? So if I say we're elected because of foreknowledge, that actually goes one way a bit too far, and the verse doesn't actually say the word because. So if I say you're elect because of foreknowledge, that's me swinging a pendulum to a one direction. But what if I swing it to the other opposite side? So now I'm going to say you're elect in spite of foreknowledge. Nothing to do with foreknowledge. It's just because God's going to do it. Well, now I've swung the pendulum the other way. Whenever you think of this topic and that you're trying to figure it out, I want you to remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. What does the Scripture say? Does it say because of foreknowledge? Does it say in spite of foreknowledge? But what does it actually say there in your Bibles? It says, according to. It's in accordance with. They work at exactly the same time. That's the truth. It's not because of foreknowledge, neither is it in spite of, but because it's in accordance with, they actually work at perfect harmony that the gospel is absolutely for everybody, but at the same time, God does do this idea of election and choosing. Now, as we, we carry on, we're going to very quickly, because we only did three words in the um, verse one, which is not very good. So we're going to leave it there as we move on. But the reason that I wanted to get you there is that the impact of what that means, if you can grab that as a believer, if you are saved and you've accepted the Lord Jesus, you're known by him. He knows who you are. He wants you. He's worked with you. He's drawn you to himself. And he wants all of us to go and share the good news with everyone. But even more than that, you're going to see the implications of why Peter was going to start this way, which seems, okay, why start so heavy? But he's going to start in this way so that you can see where they're at and what they're dealing with and how this is going to be a great comfort to them. So let's jump down to the actual rest of the verses. So here we go in verse 3. It says, uh, what I'll do as we go there, I'll just put up one more slide up here. What I'm trying to say is that in this argument, okay, I think that the true value is right in the centre. The balance has to be weighed both ways. But now you're going to see that the, the scale is actually going to flip this way, right? So when it comes to these ideas, the Trinity or the, this um, idea of free will and predestination, I think it sits right in the middle. But now you're going to see because of what God does for us, he's going to load your scales one way heavily. One way is going to be completely out of sync. And it's not because we've done it, but this is what God is going to do for you because you're known by him. And watch what happens. So it says in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who according to his great mercy begat us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now these are the things that are yours. Unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, it's reserved in heaven for you, who by the power of God are guarded through faith unto a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice. So those are the things that are there on the right-hand side of your, the scale, the heavy side. That's the things that you just gained because God, you're known by God. That's what you have. Now, these guys are getting persecuted. In a very short few years, the guy that's writing this is going to die and be slaughtered. Many Christians are being slaughtered. So what Peter's going to do is he's going to say, I want you to load up your balance. Understand the things that are yours. This is what is for you. And then I'm just going to show what's on the other side of the scale. Keep going in verse, so in verse 6, so you rejoice greatly. It says, though now for a little while, if need be, you have put on grief in manifold trials. So that's what you're going through on the other side of the scale. Okay, so in yours, you're going through grief, you're going through hard times. And he's saying that's what's yours now. And they're not light things, right? You're going to, you could be killed. But he's, what Peter's doing is he's trying to do a comparison between the trials and the persecution that they're facing versus the inheritance and what they actually have given by God because he's tipped the scales so heavily in your favour. And I think that what he's trying to do in the way of application for us is what trials are you going through? What are you facing? Do you see the things that are still to come? I don't think it's necessarily going to be an easy few years coming up. But whatever trials you have on your faith, on the things that are happening, all the events that are in this world, so whatever that is, are you going to focus on the trials and the grief that that is? Or like Peter's telling these people, he wants them to focus on the weight of what's ready to be inherited. And then the question really is, how are you going to respond today? So with the trials and the, the, the feelings of what you're going through, are you going to focus on that? Or are you going to just remember the things that you've given for inheritance? Because if we look through it, it says in verse 7, this is the, the point that he's trying to make. Okay, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is proved by fire, may be found unto praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is if you can prove your faith in the trial and in the hardship, wait for the inheritance that is sitting ready for you in heaven on the right-hand side of the scale. He's trying to get them. You guys are facing huge persecution, even to the point of death. And he's not trying to make light of that. He's not going, oh, don't worry, just, just go hard. He's actually saying, look, I want you to realise that I'm, I understand that. But when I put the balance together... This is your trials, and it's only for a short time. Think of the things eternal which are waited for you because of what God's got ready for you. And he's saying right now in this hardship, so whatever hardship you're going through, whatever trials you're facing, prove your faith. Prove it. Test it. See how God is using you in those trials and stay strong to what is your inheritance because the result is this. In verse 8, it says, Whom not having seen, this is us not seeing Jesus, or whom you 
Though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice greatly with joy unspeakable and full glory. Have you ever thought of that? Like, I don't know how many of you have actually seen Jesus yet. You might have been able to, you can feel his Holy Spirit, right, in his presence. Even Moses wasn't able to see the, the face of God. And, and I doubt whether we've seen Jesus in his glory. But that's what is waiting for us. You're going to see him as he is, and you also are going to be able to be in his presence, ready to receive the things that are all on the right-hand side of the scale, and that's what he's wanting the people to understand. And then he says, Yet believing you rejoice greatly with joy unspeakable and full glory, verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. He's got it all set there. And he's just saying, can you, can you try to endure the trials that you're going through while you get ready to receive the great reward that God has got for you? And it's heavily balanced in your favour. And then verse 10 and going on, like verse 10 and carrying on, that's actually part of my... <laughs> Those are some of my favourite verses, or not the, not the verses, but the, um, the whole area of what it's talking about. Um, and the reason that's for me is that so much, it talks about this, we'll read it. It says, concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did point unto when it was testified before forehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them. So what he's saying is that many prophets in the Old Testament or before the time that Jesus came, they desired these things. They desired to have something that we already have. They desired to know the timing. They desired to know God's plan for salvation for mankind, all of these things. And they diligently tried to find out the understanding. It's just that in the Old Testament, it's pretty hard, right? But the thing is that we've got... a a huge tool and an advantage, and that is that if we, and that's why it's one of my favourite areas, is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And the reason that I say that is that if you can look at all of the Old Testament scriptures and you really work at them diligently and figure out what does that actually mean and how did that work, would you have come to the conclusion when Jesus turned up that he was the Messiah? I would say there's enough in there for sure if we would have recognised it. And if we'd gone through there, it's just that we're in hindsight, so we see things a bit differently. But there's so much volume of information that's available, and we would see his first coming. And if we would do that, the reason why it's so interesting to me is that if you could figure those things out and see and look at what that means, what does that mean for the second coming of Christ? Do you reckon the pattern's the same? Do you reckon if you could figure out how God's done it and why he's doing it this way and setting out that this is the timing and how it works and why and all these, and then goes, there's the time, and you can see it, then, then maybe what he was doing in the, from that point on when he rose and he, he's coming at his second coming, maybe it's all there for us as well. And that's my, like, the thing that really I love is seeing how God's put it together, how it's so astute. It's not airy-fairy language. It's not this idea of like, Holy Spirit, just come on me and tell me how it all works. It's far more than that. It's, it's the idea of in unison with that, doing this diligently, seeing what God's doing. And as that works through, as you see it and how it, the pinnacle is Jesus Christ coming. But how many of us can see or do you see how it works for when he's coming into his second coming? Or are we going to be like some of the Pharisees and Sadducees that don't even recognise the times that we're in, not seeing how it works? And we just like go along with the crowd or seeing what it is. And that's why for me, it's such a, a really important thing. And that's what he's focusing on here for these people. He's saying, look, 
this is what the prophets foretold about. He was here. He was only a few years. It's, it's 64 AD, somewhere around there. Jesus has not long been gone. And he's saying that they all looked for this and there he is right here. Um, verse 12, we just finished there. It says, to whom it was revealed that not only unto themselves, but unto you did they minister these things which you now have been announced unto you through them that preach the gospel unto you by the Holy Spirit. Meaning it's actually now been revealed to them. They have what the, what the prophets were looking for in all the Old Testament. Which things the angels desire to look into. Now that's a fascination thing for me is these angels. I mean, I'm not going to go there, we're going to finish now. So we don't have to... But the, the angels is a fascination for me and I'll tell you why. Is that it says that the angels desire to look into these things. There's some huge advantage that we have as believers, even over the angels. Angels had to make a decision, right? They had to make a decision whether they would follow God or whether they would not follow God. But the ones that didn't follow God, they didn't get a choice later on to see whether they would then repent and come to faith because they were born, they were without sin when they were created. And so they made their decision and once that decision was made, then that's it, that was their decision. We're the opposite. We were actually born in sin. We started the other way around. We were born in sin, and then through that, God has saved us. And in one way, we have a huge advantage over angels. And that is that we don't just see the effects of sin. We don't just see um, how that operates and the things that are around us, but we are sinners that are saved by grace. And so what that means is that we know what sin is, but yet, we're going to have the sin removed from us. Can you think about who God is? God has no sin. Does he know what sin is like? Does he know the effects of sin? It's a huge thing when you think that through, what that actually means, that we have this, we actually have this huge privilege, which is why I think it says that we're going to judge angels. But it also says that in certain places that the angels desire to look into these things. One of the times that I think the angels desire to look into is actually when we take that bread and wine. I often think, wonder if there's just maybe, when it says that they desire to look into these things, that they're actually looking into this whole idea of what does it really mean to be saved? God saved us and what he's done, and they don't, they don't have that same kind of um, opportunity that we have. But we're going to close there, but I just want to yeah, close, just remember the scale is what I'm wanting you to do. If you get into this topic, remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, and it's in accordance with. But whatever trials you're also facing or dealing with right now, or that will be coming up, or that's going to happen, as hard as they are, just please try to remember to balance the scale. Feel the scale, the weight that is for you and how God has done it. It's not you trying to prepare. It's not you adding those scale things on. It's already there waiting for you and it's heavily weighted in our favour if we would just let him do it. But I'm not trying to make any less of a trial that you're going through. Some of those things can be so hard, right? But just try to do it like what Peter's saying to these guys. Keep in remembrance the balance. So as we go through these hard times, and even if you have to go through them together, just keep in focus the amazing things that God has got for your inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can um, just start looking into this, this book, Lord. We, we see a lot of uh, 
<laughs> things that even starts off with the first verse, Lord. And, but Lord, I just thank you for um, the way that you used Peter to relate to these people that were being persecuted and hurt, Lord, not trying to make light of any of the things that they were um, being persecuted with, Lord. But in balance of that, it would only be for a short time. And even if that time would even end up in resulting like Peter's own um, body would, Lord, would to be for death. But Lord, on the other side, you gave such a massive inheritance. Lord, I, we just thank you so much that you would balance the scales so heavily in favour for us. Who are we that we would even be on the scale, Lord? But that you would do that for us is just, it's hard to comprehend, Lord. We just thank you that that's who you are. And we know, Lord, that we are told and commanded because of what you've done for us to tell the whole world, Lord. It's, the, it's available to everyone. Lord, help us to be your witnesses. And as we've heard, Lord, even a couple of weeks, Lord, help us to even think about the differentiation. Are we Christians or are we disciples? What are we doing for you, Lord? And we just pray, Lord, that you will always help us to just keep balances correctly and help us to focus on the things that you've got for our lives. And we just give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.